for England was no longer peopled mainly by squires and their dependents. In a hundred thriving cities there was growing up a class, almost unknown as yet in other countries, who were no less important in their way than the great landlords of the shires. Owners of factories and mills and coal mines, controllers of warehouses and joint stock companies, heads of trading houses, brokerage firms and banks, these were the products of a new age of iron and steam. That such men were well-to-do goes without saying. Some were rich beyond the dreams of avarice, and step by step, as machinery was improved and production thereby multiplied, from rich they became richer. Yet however big their incomes or magnificent their mansions, these men were not of the aristocracy itself. Many of them had actually risen from the ranks. Taken as a whole, they were regarded somewhat askance by high society, Engaged as they were in the despised trade of making money instead of merely receiving it, like gentlemen, and the form of tithes or rents, these men of business were broadly lumped together with the still larger company of clerks, shopkeepers, and tradesfolk as the great middle class. Now, the men of the middle class, being dependent for success upon their brains, were sturdy thinkers and what ideas were running in their heads it is well worth our trouble to inquire. The outstanding feature of the middle-class creed was the doctrine of free trade and all that followed from it. This doctrine had taken its birth towards the close of the preceding century in the work of the great Scottish political economist Adam Smith. In a treatise which he called The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith had roundly denounced those artificial obstructions to commercial enterprise which were the lingering relic of an age when political economy was little studied and still less understood. The old idea had been, as we have often pointed out, to protect all domestic industries by preventing competition from outside. Thus, until 1770, cotton had been practically excluded from this country lest it should prove a fatal rival to our home-grown wool. And thus again, more recently, the Corn Laws were established to promote the interest of our farming class. Such restrictions, however, Adam Smith declared to be based upon a fallacy. Competition, as he saw it, was the very breath of commercial life and the source of all prosperity. When every nation and every individual are straining their resources to overreach or undersell their neighbors, the result, he argued, would be a maximum of effort, a maximum of production, and consequently at the same time a minimum of cost. Hamper competition and you inevitably restrict supply. And as everyone knows nowadays, inadequate supply will result in higher prices, whereas abundance will result in low. Adam Smith's theories were taken up by manufacturers and passed by them to their most extreme conclusion. His disciples, the men of the Manchester School, as they were called, went far beyond the profit. They declared that the only road to prosperity lay in the most ruthless competition, and that it was the primary duty of a businessman to look to his own interest and to overreach his neighbor, more especially if that neighbor were a poor, helpless working man, and that to pay low wages was as much a matter of sound commercial principle as to sell an article for the most that it would bring. Even if the poor man might suffer in the process, he would gain, so they maintained, in the long run, for through such unfettered and unlicensed competition would arise a prosperity in which all alike would share.
Every man for himself and God for all of us, might have been their parody of Canning's famous cry. Whatever the merits or shortcomings of this theory, it was at least progressive, and the middle class of the towns was not a class to lag behind. Nor, hard and inhuman as the theory must appear, were its disciples so utterly indifferent to the condition of the masses. Their behavior doubtless varied, and most employers were hard taskmasters. But they lived at closer quarters to their underlings than did the big landlords of the countryside, and some at any rate among them felt that there was somehow something wrong. They did not, of course, admit that the fault lay with themselves or with their theory. They preferred, after the British manner, to put the blame on Parliament. The close oligarchy of squires who ruled at Westminster were simply ruling in the interest of a decaying caste. They did not understand the needs of the whole nation because they did not represent the nation as a whole.